a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 1015 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. This is a heads up for those of you who are listening to the audio podcast of this study, but not watching the video, because after I'd already recorded the study, I decided that it might eliminate some confusion if I included some timelines of some of the highlights of Paul's life. So you can see those timelines on the video. But I didn't mention these timelines in the recording because I didn't decide to include them until after the study was done. So if all the dates you hear me mentioning in this recording seem a little confusing to you, it might help for you to go to the video post of this study and maybe do a screenshot of one of those timelines. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. If you happen to watch my little five-minute video update and prayer request for this study of Romans that we're beginning now, you may remember that I included a couple of quotes from two of the great leaders of the Protestant Reformation. You remember that? Martin Luther and John Calvin. Martin Luther wrote this. It, talking about the book of Romans, it is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel, the absolute epitome of the gospel. And John Calvin wrote this, when anyone understands this epistle, again, he's talking about the book of Romans, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Obviously, these two great men of God felt like this part of God's word was extremely profound and extremely important. In 386 AD, 386 years roughly after the birth of Jesus. Augustine was a young man who lived on the coast of North Africa, not far from the ancient city of Carthage. It was a place called Hippo. It's what we can now call Algeria, that whole area. He was converted there. His life was a shambles. He was totally miserable. And he was in a friend's garden, weeping because of the misery and depression of his life. And while he was there in that sad state, he heard some children in the distance chanting the words to a children's game. And the words were, take up and read, take up and read. And those words got his attention and he looked around him and lo and behold, there was a scroll lying nearby and he picked it up. And you remember what it was? It was a part of the book of Romans. Yeah. And this is what he read not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's from Romans chapter 13. Later on, Augustine wrote these words. He said, no further would I read nor had I any need. 
instantly at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And God used these few words from Romans to change Augustine's life forever. He made Augustine into one of the greatest thinkers and theologians and scholars and philosophers of the history of the church, a brilliant man. God started his life in Christ with the book of Romans. In 1513, Martin Luther was a very conscientious, very sensitive Catholic monk and teacher, but his sensitivity to his own sin made him a very miserable man. He knew what God's righteousness demanded of him, but he didn't know how to do it. He was trying to practice righteousness, but he was an honest man. He couldn't just pretend like some people do, and he was sensitive, and it led him to despair. He realized how awful he was. He realized how serious his sin was. He realized he couldn't attain the righteousness that he wanted so desperately to attain. He couldn't do the things that pleased God, no matter how much penance he did. It just wasn't enough. But you know what? He was a monk who had students that he was teaching. And one of the things he was teaching was from the book of Romans to his students. And as he studied that book to teach it to his students, God enabled Martin Luther to read it with fresh eyes. And he finally understood. And Romans 1.17 became very, very precious to him. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then Luther wrote this, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. <laughs> this passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. And so Martin Luther was converted. He was trusting Christ, and he led many, many others in his wake to follow and trust Christ. One of them was John Wesley. In the year 1728, John Wesley was ordained as an Anglican priest. <laughs> and a few years later, 1735, John and his brother Charles, you remember Charles Wesley, the famous hymn writer? Well, they came to America to try to serve as missionaries in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> They happened on that trip across the Atlantic from London to be sailing with a group of Moravian Christians. And on that journey, they came through a violent storm that broke off the mast of their ship. Well, the English men, including the Wesleys, were panicking. They were going, we're going to die. <laughs> but they looked over at the Moravians, and those Moravian Christians were singing hymns and praying. They weren't panicking. <laughs> And, of course, John couldn't forget that. He thought, these guys have something I don't have. Well, he spent a couple of years in America, in Georgia, and then he sailed back to England. But he was very depressed at that point. He felt his time in America had been a failure. I mean, he just didn't accomplish much at all. Of course, he wasn't saved yet. <laughs> but in 1738, he went to a Bible study led by the Moravians in London, England. You know what they were studying? <laughs> of course you do. They were beginning to study the the book of Romans, and they were studying in particular the commentary that Martin Luther had written on Romans. 
And here's what Wesley wrote later about that experience. He said, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Incredible. God has changed so many lives with this book. So let's take a look at it. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We're not going to get any farther than that today, but let's just read some more for context. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so begins one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written down. Let's not go too fast here. Let's focus on that first word, Paul, 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 a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I think we need to understand a little bit better who this man was because he had an incredible life and he went through an incredible transformation and was used in an incredibly powerful way. But as we understand his life, it will help us appreciate the depth of this book. When we understand better the depth of the man God used to write, it will understand the depth of the book better. It's very important that we understand as much as we can about Paul. Most likely, he was born around 5 AD in the city of Tarsus in the Roman province of Cilicia, about seven or eight years after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Cilicia was a Roman province on the northeast shore of the Mediterranean Sea. It's part of what we often call Asia Minor now, and nowadays it's Turkey in modern times. You can see it here on the map. Here's Asia Minor. Here's Cilicia. Here's a closer view. See Tarsus there? By the way, notice it isn't too far away from Antioch in Syria. You see that? You see how close they are? That's going to turn out to be important. Antioch was in the Roman province of Syria, a different province, but it was only about 85 miles from Tarsus. And Antioch would turn out to be an extremely important place for Paul later in his life, as we shall see. But even though Paul was born in Tarsus, and by the way, in Acts 22, he tells us he was also born a Roman citizen, which would turn out to be an extremely great blessing for his life later on, opened, opened doors for the gospel. He tells us in Acts 22, 3, that he was brought up in Jerusalem. So he was born in Tarsus, but he was brought up in Jerusalem because he was a student of the great teacher Gamaliel. Gamaliel happened to be the grandson of one of the teachers recognized by Jews anyway as one of the greatest teachers in their long history. And that was a man by the name of Hillel. You may have heard that name as a great Jewish scholar teacher. 
Paul was so brilliant and showed so much promise as a Jewish leader to the other Jewish leaders that there's pretty strong evidence that even as a very young man, he achieved a very coveted position on the Sanhedrin. Very unusual for young men to serve there. But in Acts 26, Paul says he cast his vote against the Christians, and scholars believe that many had a vote on the Sanhedrin. So even as a young man, he had shown such promise and such brilliance that they'd already put him on the Sanhedrin. And he was fanatically devoted to what he perceived to be keeping the purity of his faith, Judaism. We know that after Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised again to life on the third day, we know that the number of Christians exploded right there in Jerusalem. We can read about that in Acts. But their numbers began to increase all over Judea and into Samaria, and gradually throughout the empire. We'll talk more about that later also, but it's a very powerful thing how the population of Christians exploded. But to Paul, who was a Jewish purist, this was, this was a problem. This was horribly unacceptable. He thought all these people were deceived. <laughs> he saw them as a threatening new sect that was weird and strange and wrong. And he felt it was his responsibility to do anything he could to stamp out this new, strange, blasphemous sect of people. And when we begin to read in the New Testament what that meant, we begin to realize that Paul, before he became a Christian, really did fit the role of Antichrist. He, he was an Antichrist to the early church. Very scary, frightening, horrible men. Listen to what he said, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Look at this verse. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He was brutal. Look at this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. We'll see that again in a minute. And even when God changed Paul forever, you know, on the Damascus Road. You remember that. Christians were still terrified of him. God sent him to Ananias, remember? And God warned Ananias, now, now, Paul's coming. I've told him he's going to come talk to you. God set it all up. But you remember Ananias' response? I'm sure his eyes got big, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Saul was a terrifying man. Here's something else Paul said in Acts 22. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Acts 26. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In his letter to the Galatians, he said, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
So God gives us a very graphic, dramatic picture of what this man was like before he came to Christ. He was brutal. He was horrible. He was very aggressive and threatening and horrifying. So the point, of course, one of the points of all this is that God's grace is so amazing and so superabounding that it could take a man like this and redeem this murderous, blaspheming, Jesus-hating persecutor, a man like Paul, and make him into the greatest evangelist in the history of the church. <laughs> now, if God can do that with Paul, <laughs> he can certainly save sinners like you and me, right? Of course he can. So, so Saul was a brutal persecutor of the church. But in 34 AD, Saul would have been about 29 years old. He was on his way to Damascus in the, in the Roman province of Syria to arrest Christians. Now, let's just read this account. I think it's worth reading here. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone round him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Listen to this. God said to Ananias, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. <laughs> so this resurrected Jesus appeared to Saul declared Saul, whose name eventually, of course, is changed to Paul. I'll use that interchangeably throughout here. He said, you're going to be an apostle, one who's been sent by me personally, primarily to the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul told us that he then spent three years in Arabia and then back in Damascus before he finally went to Jerusalem to consult with Peter, James, and John, the other apostles. Nor, he said, did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He meant immediately after his salvation. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. By the way, 
At that time, Arabia was a Roman province that included the Sinai Peninsula. Here, see it right there on the map? It's right here. So many scholars think Jesus taught Paul personally for the approximate amount of time he taught his other apostles personally while he was walking on this earth in his earthly ministry. And that Jesus chose to teach him at the same place where he had previously taught Moses and taught Elijah at Mount Sinai, which was in the uh, Arabia at that time, southern Sinai Peninsula. We can't be sure of that, but it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Sounds like a good choice for Jesus to make. In any case, it was three years before he finally made it to Jerusalem. Then, after three years, he said, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days, three years later. At first, the other disciples didn't believe it was possible that Saul had become a Christian. <laughs> he had been too terrifying, and they were afraid he was making a false claim in order just to spy them out. In other words, they thought, this is some kind of horrible trick that Saul's trying to play on us, and eventually he's going to turn on us and have us all arrested. But God convinced Barnabas to be courageous and test Saul out, and he did, and decided this man's for real. In Acts chapter 9, we read, When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. But whether the disciples were very sure of him or not, eventually, of course, they did get sure of him. But the Jews knew the truth from the beginning. They knew this man's been converted to Christianity. He's now one of those hated Christians. And they knew Saul had the potential, from just what they knew of him, to be a very powerful Christian spokesman. So the logical conclusion was this man has to be killed. We've got to get rid of Saul. He's, he's, he's dangerous to us now. So now the persecutor... Saul the persecutor has become Saul the persecuted. And so in order to save his life, the Christians in Jerusalem basically smuggled him out of the city back to his hometown of Tarsus. In verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This would have been probably 37 or 38 A.D. Now, so, so he's up there safe, safer anyway at Tarsus for the time being. I want us to back up just a little bit. You may remember that there was an intensive time of persecution of the church that broke out after Stephen was stoned. At that point in time, Saul is still a persecutor of the church. He was there, in fact, when they killed Stephen. You remember that? And because of this intense persecution that happened after Stephen was killed, many Christians at that point thought, we got to get out of here. So they began to flee Jerusalem, and as they went different places, this was intentional. God uses persecution like this to, to spread the gospel. They were taking the name of Jesus. They were talking to others about Jesus everywhere they went. They were telling them the gospel, and many of them wound up in Antioch, Syria. Now, Antioch, Syria was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. And I want us to read this in Acts chapter 11. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, listen, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. 
Now, in the Greek, that word can be a little bit confusing. Sometimes it referred to Greek-speaking Jews, but based on the context that we have here in this whole passage of Scripture, I believe here it has to refer to Greeks as Gentiles. Sometimes the word Greeks was used as a synonym for Gentiles. Also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So they're preaching the, the, the truth about Jesus to Jews and Gentiles alike. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So you see this picture? Several years now have passed since the stoning of Stephen. The gospel is getting spread out. Saul has been sent back to his hometown in Tarsus. The gospel is coming to Antioch. Did you notice that some of those original missionaries to Antioch were from Cyprus? That's where Barnabas was from. His home was in Cyprus, the island of Cyprus not far from Antioch, so he was a logical choice to go check it out. So the word gets back to Jerusalem. A lot of people are coming to Christ in Antioch. Remember, it's a huge Roman city, and many of them apparently Gentiles. Eventually, we don't have time to get into this now, but that's going to cause an uproar in the church at Jerusalem. So they decide to send Barnabas to check it all out, and when he gets there, he realizes this is for real. And then he thinks, wait a minute, Saul's not too far from here. Tarsus isn't that far away. Remember looking at it on the map a while ago? Maybe a few days away. Maybe one day if you, if you went by sea. Anyway, he found Saul, went to Tarsus, found Saul, brought him back to Antioch, and they ministered together there for a while. About a year later, the Holy Spirit told the church at Antioch, I'm getting ready to send out some missionaries from here, this church, and I want Saul and Barnabas set apart because we'll send them on a missionary journey to share the gospel to plant churches. They would have been around 47 AD. And so Paul and Barnabas sailed to Cyprus and on their first missionary journey, then up to Perga. You see it on the map there. Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. It's while they were at Lystra, by the way, you may remember this account that some of the antagonistic Jews had chased Paul down and stoned him and dragged him out of the city for dead. God raised him back up. Well, a couple of years later, 49 AD, Paul and Barnabas had a big argument over John Mark, and they split up, and Paul left on his second missionary journey with another man named Silas. When they got to Lystra, you can see it there on the map, the same town where he had been stoned on his first missionary journey, Paul found a young man named Timothy, who had become one of his closest co-workers in the ministry. And then when they got to Troas, this team found another important man named Dr. Luke, who joined the team with them there at Troas. And if anyone in Paul's life, human being, ever got closer to him than Timothy did, it would have been Luke. They spent a lot of time together on these missionary trips, missionary journeys. You see what God's doing? He's putting together this awesome missionary team. Silas, Paul, Timothy, and Luke at this point, and others would join as time went on. Before that journey was over, Paul would spend a year and a half establishing and growing the church at Corinth. You see it there on the map, what we call southern Greece today. 
In 53 AD, Paul began his third missionary journey. This time he spent between two and three years in another one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire, the city of Ephesus. But in 56 AD, he left Ephesus and went through Macedonia, we call it Northern Greece, where he'd established churches at Philippi and Thessalonica. You can see them there on the map. And then near the end of this missionary journey, he spent three more months at Corinth. This would be 56 AD. Now, this is important because while he's there in Corinth for those three months, after all, this is his third missionary journey, remember, after all these incredible experiences God has put him through, deepened him, empowered him, taught him so much, the Holy Spirit inspired him at this moment, at this place, to write this letter of Romans that we call Romans. So his ministry and his walk with the Lord were very, very deep by now. And God uses that depth. And God uses Paul's keen analytical mind that God had given him to begin with to cause Paul to write one of the deepest, most profound pieces of literature that's ever been written, 56 A.D. By that time, by the way, Paul had already written some letters to the Galatians and two letters to the Thessalonians and two letters to the Corinthians. He'll write more of his letters later. Well, the following year, 57 A.D., Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, wound up spending a couple of years under house arrest in Caesarea Maritima, and then two more years under house arrest in Rome. He was eventually released. That would be 62 or 63 A.D. He did some more missionary work, probably including a trip to Spain. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that he made it there, but the early church leaders say that he did. It's mentioned in the Bible that he wanted to go to Spain. He had a desire to go to Spain. We'll see that in Romans, but, but the actual trip's not mentioned in the Bible. Anyway, he was rearrested by Nero in 66 AD, and this time, after writing his final, very poignant, powerful, touching letter to Timothy, we call it 2 Timothy, he was soon beheaded there in Rome. What an incredible life, and what an incredible book. God has put all this together in an incredible way, and I want us to appreciate the amazing historical details that God engineered into this man to, to produce this incredibly powerful book. So Paul begins the book by describing himself. Paul, that's the way he describes himself, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. The Greek word is doulos, slave. He freely confesses that he's been bought with a price. His life is not his own. He's owned by somebody else, but Jesus Christ. Isn't it one of the great ironies of life and paradoxes of life? You know, everybody is around us. It's very common in our culture. Everybody's clamoring for freedom. We want freedom. And, they, of course, they define freedom to do whatever they want to do, including all kinds of sin. And it turns out to lead to destruction and, and slavery of another kind, of a horrible kind. And it turns out God shows us, and he's shown us through Paul, God created us in such a way that we can only find true freedom when we become voluntary slaves of the one who bought us with his own blood, our Lord Jesus. Then he sets us free. And so many people have a hard time understanding that. Paul was a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul had been set free by becoming a slave. We'll, see, we'll hear more about that as we work through this book. He was called to be an apostle. The word apostle literally simply means one who sent out a messenger it can be used in ordinary sense. I mean, if I wrote a 
note, for example, to Brother Holly and handed it to you and asked you to take it to him and explain it to him, you might say, well, I'm Steve's apostle. <laughs> well, it's true, but in a very different way, right? I mean, it, it, you're a messenger, but, but in the Bible, very early, it came to have a deeper meaning. Jesus gave it a deeper meaning. Jesus sent out the original 12, remember? And he called them apostles. Look at Matthew chapter 10. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then in verse 2, he says, the names of the 12 apostles, and now they've been given this new name, the new title, an apostle, and he lists their names. In Luke chapter 6, look how he writes this. In these days, he, that's Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So very early, this word apostle becomes a title, a very special, unique title for these twelve closest followers of Jesus. Now, that caused a little problem for Paul later on, <laughs> and many in his own day questioned whether Paul should be called an apostle. I mean, really, Paul? You're calling yourself an apostle? I mean, you are one of the twelve. You didn't walk with Jesus during Jesus' years of earthly ministry. How can you call yourself an apostle? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is after he had mentioned some of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances after he had risen from the dead. He appeared to Peter and James and the other apostles and over 500 brothers at one time. He said this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. Over and over again, you hear Paul saying this in his letters. He, he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, but it's not by my will. He stresses it over and over. It's, it's the will of God. It's not my choice. It wasn't my decision. I didn't appropriate the title. God told me I had to be an apostle. So here I am. I'm an apostle. That's what I am. I am what I am. <laughs> And you know, when we look at his life and we look at the fruit that God produced through Paul, we can see it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Certainly he's an apostle. Finally, he says he's been set apart for the gospel. First time we see this word in this wonderful letter, he's set apart for the gospel. It appears, the word appears 13 times in the letter. The Greek word is euangelion, euangelion. It's a compound word. Two Greek words are put together to make the word gospel. The Greek word you, E-U, you, means good. And angelos, the root of the second part of the word, angelion, angelos means angel or messenger. I mean, angelos, you can hear it, can't you? It's the word usually just transliterated into the English as the word angel. Angels were often sent out as messengers of God. So literally, it simply means good message or good news. And Paul's going to spend the rest of this book making sure that we understand what that good message is. It's what this book's all about, the gospel. Now, we often will state the gospel in a very simple way. It takes just a few seconds to state it, put it together in a nutshell. And we should be able to do that. I think it's important. 
you know, for example, we could say the gospel. Well, that's the simple truth that God the Son became a man. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. He lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross to take upon himself the punishment and the wrath that we deserve for our rebellion and sins and selfishness. He took our place. He died for me. And he was buried, but the grave couldn't hold him. He conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered the grave. He rose again from the dead. And that proved beyond all doubt that he really is God. And now we can have our sins forgiven. We can be saved. We can have eternal life by simply as a little child trusting him. I mean, that's the gospel. That's a good message, isn't it? That's the good message. But here's the point. That's, that's true. But you don't put a period there and say, okay, that's all we need to say. No, there's more depth than we realize. It's more profound than we probably realize, probably than we can ever fully understand. So in this book, what God's beginning to do is letting us get a glimpse of some of the depths of this amazing gospel. Some of the profound things of this gospel that maybe might escape our attention if we weren't careful. And God wants us to dig into this and God wants us to see things. God wants us to understand things, dig a little deeper, go a little farther with him. And God willing, that's what we're going to be doing over the coming weeks and months. I hope you'll stay with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. I know I cannot do justice to the power of what we're beginning to look at here. But Lord, I pray that some way you'd use me as a frail instrument to speak your truth clearly and effectively and powerfully. Pray to fill me with your spirit in the next few weeks and months as we look at this incredible book. Thank you so much for raising up Paul. Lord, your plan is simply astounding, astonishing, amazing. You blow us away. The more we look at what you've done and what you're like and how you work, the more amazed we are. So we give you praise and glory for Paul. We give you praise and glory for this amazing letter that you caused him to write, that you've used through the centuries to change so many lives, to change the course of history. It's an amazing book. So help us to, to study this book with open hearts to you. Help us to be teachable, to, to learn from you what you want us to learn so that we can be more like Jesus and so that we can bring you more glory. So get glory now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.